0: Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series From Canvas to Screen on select Saturdays in March. Enjoy a film that captures the drama and beauty of some of history's most celebrated works of art, including Metropolis, Days of Heaven, and Marie Antoinette at NortonSimon.org.
1: Support comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting One of the Good Ones. Meet your new favorite family in this laugh-out-loud, heartfelt story from Gloria Calderon-Kellett, the co-creator and showrunner of Netflix's One Day at a Time. Tickets at pasadenaplayhouse.org.
2: It's Film Week on LA's 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us with critics Wade Major of Synagogues.com and Christy Lemire of RogerEbert.com. She also co-hosts the Breakfast All Day YouTube and podcast series. First up this week is the comedic thriller Cocaine Bear, which was inspired by an actual online video and story. The film starring Kerry Russell and O'Shea Jackson Jr., Elizabeth Banks directs, Jimmy Warden wrote the screenplay. Christy, please start us off on Cocaine Bear.
1: I had so much fun. I had the best time. I laughed, I squirmed, I screamed, I squealed. Cocaine Bear does exactly what it needs to do. It knows what kind of movie it is, and it has so much fun with that. I mean, it says it all right there in the title. It's about a cocaine bear. (laughs) Kind of like snakes on a plane, right? Remember snakes on a plane? What a phenomenon that was. And I feel like it, it embraces the insanity of its concept and just has so much fun with it. Like it's legitimately gory and harrowing at times, but mostly it is just very, very silly. Um, It is, as you mentioned, inspired by actual events in 1985. A bunch of cocaine got dropped from the sky by this drug smuggler who's dumping, you know, packages out out of his plane. And um, a bunch of it turned up in Georgia. And this, in real life, the bear, died. Um, But uh, this film directed by Elizabeth Banks imagines what might have happened if indeed many, many people had crossed Cocaine Bear's path. So it's about all these different people who are in the forest for various reasons. Either it's a couple of kids ditching school, or it's um, Carrie Russell as a mom trying to find her daughter, or it's park rangers just on patrol, or it's other hooligans causing trouble or it is the actual people looking for the cocaine that has been dropped from the sky because they've got to get it back. Um, it is this incredible cast. It is Ray Liotta in his final role. <laughs> this is the way his career ends. Um, but there are some kind of amusing, you know, glimmers of, of Goodfellas here in his performance. Carrie Russell, Alden Ehrenreich, O'Shea Jackson Jr., Isaiah Whitlock Jr. is great. Margot Martindale is fantastic in this. Brooklyn Prince, who was the little girl in the Florida Project, is one of the kids in uh, Looking for a Cocaine Bear, or Looking to Get Away from Cocaine Bear, actually. And it is just cheesy and so funny. And when it tries to be about something more emotionally meaningful, when it tries to be a little sentimental about these characters and their relationships and how they try to survive cocaine bear, the pacing really lags. When it's about people like hanging from trees and getting their limbs gnawed off by this thing, it is a total blast. Um, There's a whole tour de force sequence involving an ambulance and the bear chasing after an ambulance. It is very steeped in 80s culture from the soundtrack, which is everything from scandal to depeche mode uh brooklyn prince's character has like billy idol and jason bateman posters hanging up in her room like it's very Mm -hmm. attuned to the cheesiness of this era um i had a really good time and it's a film that lives up to its hype i mean there has been the trailer has been everywhere it's a twitter feed it's an 8-bit game where you can play as cocaine bear and eat people and Anyway, I had a really good time. <laughs> and is is the Bears CGI? Yeah. So here, they actually have, it's impressive. <laughs> they put some thought and work into this. They went to Weta FX, the the FX house in New Zealand that Peter Jackson works with on like the Lord of the Rings movies, for example. And so it's an actor, it's a stuntman doing a motion capture performance, somebody who is a... a who has worked under Andy Serkis, actually, who was yeah. the master of this. And then they did it all with CGI because the logic was that you have to actually believe cocaine bear. You have to believe that it is a real animal. And yes, they have anthropomorphized it to a really heightened extent for, for hilarious effect. But like, you have to believe that this really is a bear tearing open packages of cocaine and then like tearing through the forest. So- It actually, it it looks better than you might expect a movie called Cocaine Bear to look.
2: (laughs) Cocaine Bear is rated R, uh, the comedic thriller. What do you think, Wade?
3: Yeah, a whole lot less than that. Uh, But I knew Christy would like it because we had a similar disconnect on Megan. You know, the, the problem I have with Cocaine Bear is it's not cheesy enough. It's trying to it's trying to walk a line between being a really gory horror film and a really funny black comedy and then still have these sentimental moments. And those things can't really coexist, at least not for my Could taste.
2: Could it do two of them instead of three of them?
3: It may be, but it has too many storylines, you know, and some of them just kind of hit the wall at a certain point. Too many characters that are interacting with this bear because it needs a lot of people to sacrifice. So, you know, it has all of these threads loaded up with people because it's just throwing people at this bear to eat. And I don't know, just cocaine? make you want to like eat? I mean, I think that's beside that's, the point
2: of saying Like I was thinking, well,
3: like marijuana bear would have would have had more out of an appetite, but no incentive and no motivation. <laughs> so I, I don't know. It it just, you know, it, it's not cheesy enough. And I kept thinking, and a shout out to my friends at the asylum, because they know how to do this right. It doesn't go full sharknado and for this movie to have worked for me it needed to go full sharknado and it needed to just really really push the camp and it and it and it pulls back it wants to be it still be too much of a real movie so it's too gory to be funny and it's too sentimental to be funny, and it's not gory enough to be scary. So it's kind of, it lives somewhere. You know, I love the soundtrack, I love these actors, but it lives in this in this weird mixed genre place that I, it just it's it's you know jack of all trades, master of none.
2: We're talking about Cocaine Bear. It's rated R in white release. Also out this week, and this is an entirely different theme, of course, Jesus' Revolution, which takes us back to the early 1970s with Pastor Chuck Smith and Calvary Chapel getting started uh, in the Santa Ana Costa Mesa area, baptisms at Newport Beach, a whole um, Young Jesus Movement taking place. Uh, The dramatic film is directed by John Irwin and Brent McCorkle, and it stars Joel Courtney and Jonathan Ruin. Me. Wait, what did you think of Jesus Revolution?
3: I was surprisingly impressed. You know, I've I've always been critical of the faith-based genre because it's very very formulaic. It's it's uh, you know someone has a life crisis, they find religion, they find Jesus, and they turn their lives around. And it's and it's that trajectory in almost all of these. And it's either you know problems with drugs, problems with sex, problems with money, um, and it's it's a, it's a it's a very familiar formula. That's here, make no mistake, that's part of the story, but it also has really high production value, a very good cast. And it actually gets into some very interesting um, notions of conflict within this community, the traditional Christian community versus this sort of new uh, hippie-oriented Jesus movement, which really happened. I mean, you and I both lived through it.
2: Yeah, I was at at a Christian college in Costa Mesa in the late 70s. So I was well aware of this and and, uh, knew a lot of people who came out of this movement.
3: I remember hitchhikers on Pacific Coast Highway at Topanga Canyon holding up their, you know, Jesus loves and uh, I mean I remember that really well and it was this, it was a real shift for Christianity that a lot of traditional Christians weren't comfortable with. So the fact that it gets into the tension there, I thought was was very brave. It, it's not just focused on a, on a single dogmatic message. it wants to explore a moment of conflict in, in recent Christian history and and it deals with three real life figures. Who, in a, in a very credible way, I mean, you know, Lonnie Frisbee, who was sort of the, the big Jesus pastor and evangelist, Chuck Smith, who was the traditional guy who, you know, he's, he pivoted from traditional Christianity and traditional evangelicalism to, to embrace this, and then Greg Laurie, who kind of split the difference, you know. Um, they're all characters here, and it and it and it's quite factual in how it identifies the way that their trajectories all intersected. Uh, and Kelsey Grammer gives one of the best performances of his career. as Chuck, Chuck Smith. Smith. He's Chuck Smith. Absolutely tremendous. I mean, so nuanced and so moving. So I I think um, you know for the Irwin brothers uh, who who've been you know migrating this genre more and more and more toward the mainstream i think this is a giant step forward and uh you know i think it stands a good chance perhaps they with their next few films they can break out of the faith-based genre and and this will become more mainstream
2: jesus revolution it's based by the way on greg lowry's book of the same title that came out a few years ago uh christy what did you think
1: I was really surprised too at how good this was, how well-crafted it was. I've seen so many of these faith-based films in the past, including some of the ones that, you know, the Irwin brothers directed. It's just one Irwin brother directing here. And um, the problem with them is they've always felt kind of shoddy in terms of their craftsmanship, in terms of how obvious the writing is, in terms of just like the way they're shot and edited. It all felt kind of clunky to me. I always wondered, what would happen if someone came along who actually knew what they were doing and wanted to tell this kind of story? Because so often, like, they are literally preaching to the choir, right? They are already telling the story that it's built an audience wants to see, which is affirming to their beliefs and to their choices. Um, oh, wow. And a movie like this, I agree, really could kind of break out and reach a wider audience because it is so well-made. It's It's beautiful to look at. I want to shout out the cinematographer, Her name is Akis Constantinopoulos, and it's got this kind of shimmery, dreamy haze to a lot of it, which feels very evocative of this period and this place and time at the beach in California in the 60s. Um, And it doesn't feel, although there are very frank discussions about the nature of faith, it doesn't feel as preachy or heavy-handed to me as a lot of these films do, which to me personally often makes them off-putting. Um, the Irwin's previously explored this topic a bit with a documentary from a couple of years back, which I think I talked about you here did. on Film Week, called The Jesus Music, which is about the birth of this kind of, like the the hippie influence on Christianity and vice versa, and the music that originated from that, from this place and time in California. And so um, it. We have seen this already a little bit, and this is a fascinating contradiction that they just explore a little more dramatically here. Yeah, as Wade said, Kelsey Grammer is great in this because he he brings the necessary gravitas for you to believe his emotional transformation and his spiritual transformation like not a moment feels false and and I feel like not every actor could take what is impossible to see, a thing we can't see, a thing that is you know, internal and make us believe it like that. So um, I also thought this was really, really well done. Oh yeah, and the actor who plays Lonnie Frisbee is really good too. Um, His name is Jonathan Rumi. And yeah, there's some conflict with him there as well as he gets a little more caught up in his power, a little more full of himself and brings some more theatricality to it with like healings, you know, and it goes into an extreme place that maybe isn't fitting with the vibe that they'd established. So I was impressed.
2: That's great. Jesus Revolution, the film set in Southern California, Orange County specifically, the early 1970s. The film is directed by John Irwin and Brent McCorkle, written by John Irwin and John Gunn, based on Greg Laurie and Ellen Vaughn's book, Jesus Revolution. It's rated PG-13, and the film is in wide release. Navalny is a documentary which uh, follows the man who survived an assassination attempt by poisoning with a lethal nerve agent in August of 2020. Christy, do you want to get us started on Navalny, please?
1: Yeah, this is fantastic. And it's so essential and so urgent because it could not be more relevant. First of all, it's up for an Oscar for best documentary feature, but also Alexei Navalny is still in jail right now. And this movie is about how he survived being poisoned by the Kremlin and it follows him and his team as they like track down through data and through all kinds of people who are specialists with documents and stuff like who did it and how they did it and how they got access to the flight that he was on, and then watching his recovery from that and watching him try to you know, maintain this movement that he is this leader of against Putin while also recovering in Germany and trying to just stay alive day to day. Um, it is really intimate. He is incredibly charismatic. If you've never seen him speak before, you know, fantastic looking and so smart and so quick on his feet and so sharp and um, a voice of many, many, many people who are, you know, miserable with the way that they have lived. Uh, He is in jail right now, though, because he wanted to come back to Russia so that you see him in the documentary being apprehended as he arrives at the airport. But there's so much tension in every moment because the director, Daniel Rohrer, is there every step of the way. It's so intimate. And so you see, the nuts and that's bolts of his operation, but also more simple times with his family, his wife, his two kids. You see them walking around this, you know, quaint village yeah. in the Black Forest, feeding donkeys, you know, trying to plot their next move. So it's really well done. We'll, we'll hear what
2: Wade has to say about the documentary Navalny. It's streaming on HBO Max and in a couple of local theaters we'll tell you about which screens. That's all to come. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3.
0: Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series From Canvas to Screen, capturing the drama and beauty of some of history's most celebrated works of art. Films include Metropolis by Fritz Lang, Days of Heaven by Terrence Malick, and Marie Antoinette by Sofia Coppola. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Saturdays now through March 30th. More information at NortonSimon.org. Support for LAists comes from Pasadena Water & Power, which reminds customers to protect themselves from fraud. Remember, PWP will never request payment over the phone, mention specific bill amounts, demand to enter your home, or require immediate payment through third-party apps or websites. Verify communications by calling customer service directly or viewing the latest fraud alerts at pwpweb.com fraud. It's Film Week
2: on LAist 89.3, I'm Larry Mantle. Joined by Wade Major and Christy Lemire, our critics this week. Do want to remind you that all ten of our critics will be on stage at the Historic Orpheum Theatre, downtown Los Angeles on Broadway. Coming up real soon, it's Sunday afternoon, March 5th, 1 o'clock. Get your tickets now at eleus.com events. It's going to be a wonderful time. Uh, I'm already in the process of choosing the the clips from the Oscar-nominated films that we're going to be showing going. Uh, we'll be hearing from our critics on all the major categories, what they think, what they think was overlooked. Um, they're funny. They get into things that we frankly don't have time for on a lot of our our weekly film weeks. And you get the interplay of all the critics being on site together on stage. So please join us. It's going to be a blast. I look forward to it every uh, every year that we do it. It's our 21st annual. And if you haven't had a chance to go, please get your tickets now. They're going fast. Orpheum Theater, Sunday afternoon, March 5th at 1 o'clock, the 21st Annual Film Week Academy Awards Preview, com slash events. We just heard from Christie how much she thinks of this new HBO Max streaming documentary, Navalny, uh, on uh, the Russian dissident Alexei Navalny, uh, who's currently in prison. Wade, what do you think?
3: I, I agree completely. It's a tremendous documentary. Uh, it, it's, it, it is tremendous both in terms of the subject and in the craftsmanship with which it's been made. Um, You know, very often you'll have a a fairly pedestrian documentary that is elevated by the subject matter. Not true here. This is ace filmmaking and an incredible subject matter. So everything is just firing. You know, we think about all of the poisonings that are associated with Russian Secret Services and, and with Putin all the way back to, you know, Viktor Yushchenko, the Ukrainian president who was poisoned and survived, and the poisoning of Alexander Litvinenko in London. My wife and I were eating two doors down... From that poisoning, when it happened, oh we were gosh, we were at a wow. Thai restaurant just two doors down with a with a, a London filmmaker friend. So that was forty eight hours of absolute terror until we knew that you know we were not in at risk of having been in the the radius of polonium. So I see this thing through a really really very personal prism, and the courage that this man has and the courage that he is willing to put on camera is extraordinary, and that's a thing. It's one thing to be courageous. It's another to get in front of a camera and just put yourself out there. And the, the most riveting part of this is where they they have deduced who the, the assassins or the intended assassins were, and they call them at home, and they strike out three times, and Navalny is the one on the phone talking to them, and it's the last one who spills everything as he pretends to be someone else. It's extraordinary. Oh, my goodness. I mean, it really wow. is. It, it's something you almost cannot believe got captured on film in the moment. It's its just breathtaking. So it's like a great detective uh, story, except you just like a great spy novel. You just cannot believe that it is real and it's unfolding before your eyes. And the final chapter has yet to be written. But, um, you know, I, Navalny comes out of this thing looking like, looking like a hero, looking like a figure, you know, on the on the on the level of of every other great civil rights icon we've ever had. So,
2: Navalny is the documentary. You can see it at the Lemley Monica Film Center in Santa Monica, also at the AMC Burbank Theater. It's streaming on HBO Max. It's uh, an Oscar nominee for best documentary feature. Navalny is rated R, and we, of course, will be talking more about it at that Film Week Academy Awards preview at the Orpheum coming up on. March 5th. The New Zealand drama Juniper stars Charlotte Rampling and Martin Sokas. The film is written and directed by Matthew J. Saville. Wade, what do you think of Juniper? Uh,
3: this is a New Zealand drama. It is, it is a formula that we have seen many, many times before. It's a mismatched buddy film, except it uses generational divide. To, to bring the people together. It's almost always a young person who has to take care of an old person who's cranky, and the young person learns about life, and the old person learns how to, you know, embrace whatever it is the young person is bringing to their lives. We've seen this a million times, but not with Charlotte Rampling. And that's what elevates this. And so, even though I walked into this thinking I've seen this before, it's familiar. This young kid, he's got problems. His mom's died. He's got suicidal ideation. His dad, you know, leaves and, and, and leaves him here with his, his the grandmother he's never really known. And he can't stand her. And she's mean. And she's an old war, ju- you know, a, a photojournalist. And she's, you know, she hates everyone and everything. And she's got all this attitude and she swills gin all day long. We know where this is going to go. Yeah, We know they're going to come together. But at the same time, just watching Charlotte Rampling work is such a pleasure, is such a joy. You're just, you know, Betty Davis would have played this character 50 <laughs> years ago. You, 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 you just watch her work, even with familiar material, and she's playing the orchestra. And it is a magnificent thing to behold. So all my reservations just floated away in the wake of her expertise.
1: Juniper is the film Christie. Yeah, I was impressed by it, too, because, you know, Charlotte Rampling is tremendous always and and can do no wrong. And so she gets to within the within this brittle and kind of withering figure, she gets to show all kinds of really subtle shades of range and be a little sexy and a little raunchy and a little randy and and uh, show a a really biting sense of humor and a quick wit. Um, I was really impressed, too, with the young actor who has to play Opposite her, his name is George Farrier. I can't imagine how daunting that would be for anyone, even an accomplished actor, to have so many one-on-one scenes with somebody of the stature, somebody who was so formidable of, as Charlotte Rampling, but um, he does really well. And uh, this is a, a personal story for the filmmaker, the writer-director. It's his first feature. He's been an actor for a while. Uh, he's done a couple of shorts, but this is his first feature. And it feels personal in a lot of the the details, the production design, you know, just the the way the rooms are decorated, the the, the stories that they tell each other, right? They're, that also elevates it, I think, from being the kind of generic story that we expect. Yes, they are both cantankerous. They are both rebels. They are both willing to just, you know, cast themselves away from all is expected of them in a sort of self-destructive way. But they sort of see something in each other, That They recognize and they soften each other, and uh, it's not nearly as mawkish as that sounds.
2: (laughs) (laughs) The drama From New Zealand, Juniper, starring Charlotte Rampling and George Farrier, written and directed by Matthew J. Saville in his feature directorial debut, it's unrated and it's available in select theaters. Linoleum, a sci-fi drama, stars Jim Gaffigan, Ray Seahorn, and Caitlin Nakon. The film's written and directed by Colin West. Christy.
1: So this is a really trippy little sci-fi, indie, kind of low-budget thing with a fantastic cast. Um, there's a lot that I don't want to say about it because I don't want to give away where it goes. But what we can say is that Jim Gaffigan stars as the host of this kind of cheesy but fun children's TV science program called above and beyond. And he's really playful and goofy with it. And it has, you know, a very low budget set and funny graphics and all that. Um, but it's struggling. It has a bad time slot. His wife played by Ray Seahorn, is always great. She works at this air and space museum and they have this shared love of space and the stars and, uh, but their marriage is in trouble. And so weird things start happening in this small town in Ohio, uh, things falling from the sky, um, people showing up who seem like doppelgangers. And uh, I don't want you to say what's happening, but it plays with time and space and the nature of memory and the nature of perception. And it's a fantastic performance from Jim Gaffigan. I really like... This this streak he is on of playing unexpectedly dramatic roles. I think we know him so much as a really affable comic figure. His stand up is notoriously clean. You know, he seems like a really good guy. And I've done a Q and with him, and he is a lovely guy. But I I like that in the last couple of years he's done a few films, this included, and also um, American Dreamer, where he's gotten to show. A bit of a, a darker side, a bit of a heavier side, and some more range, and it kind of plays to the the contradiction between that performance and the sweetness of his looks. Kind of like how Jesse Plemons has the you know the boyish face, but will play these dark, weird, twisted characters sometimes. Um, so I really like what he's doing here. Ray C. Horn always brings a groundedness and a wisdom to every role she is in. And, uh, and it's just surprising over and over again, and it has a surprisingly poignant conclusion. That's all I will say, and, and it, it portends well for this young filmmaker, Colin West.
2: You, uh, Colin West wrote and directed, Linoleum, it's unrated, and you can see it at Lemley's NoHo Theater in North Hollywood. The family comedy-adventure We Have a ghost stars David Harbour and Anthony Mackie. The film's written and directed by Christopher Landon.
3: Wade? I did not expect to like this because I'm not typically a fan of Christopher Landon. Christopher Landon, of course, the, the younger son of Michael Landon who's made a career out of doing a lot of supernatural stuff. He wrote the, a lot of the Paranormal Activity movies. He, uh, he, he made his directing debut with uh, the Happy Death Day movies, uh, which he also wrote. Uh, I came on board with him with Freaky. Freaky, I thought, was a really, really smart twist on a familiar genre. Uh, you know, body switching and serial killers, and I thought that was really fun and funny. And this elevates it even more, but there are a lot of reasons I like this. Yes, it's still derivative. It's a, it's a story of a family. Anthony Mackie's the dad. He and his wife and his, their two teenage sons move into this house trying to restart their lives, but it's, of course, a dilapidated old haunted house. And the younger son one day finds the ghost in the house, which is played by David Harbour. But this is where it shifts gears. He's he's not impressed by the ghost. Uh, and David Harbour as a ghost is is you know completely nonverbal performance. Not a word spoken in this whole thing. Is very flustered. And then it take it, it shifts gears into ET territory. And he becomes friends with the ghost, who is also amnesiac. And okay, well why are you here? Why are you a ghost? What do you have to resolve? Let's do the the detective work to figure out what it what we need to do to release you from from whatever it is it's holding you here. And, you know, yeah, it's a little bit of Ghostbusters, um, a lot of Ghost, which it pays homage to, a lot of E.T., and, you know, a tiny bit of Close Encounters at the same time the government gets involved. I mean, there are all of these pieces that we've seen in these other movies, but it it becomes very much a fusion of... Christopher Landon's sensibilities and his dad's sensibilities. It's like where paranormal activity meets highway to heaven. And, <laughs> and, and, and it gets, and it, yes, it gets, it gets sentimental, but it gets sentimental in a very credible way, which, which moved me. And I was surprised by the end. I thought, you know, this underlines why the Netflix model is kind of flawed because if this movie had been released in theaters, I think it could have had a very successful run and then done even better on streaming.
1: We have a ghost. Christy. This movie is terrible, and it's so (laughs) long. It's like over two hours long. It just keeps going. It's so many different kinds of movie, as Wade put it. It has the tiniest nugget of a cool idea, which is that they encounter the ghost, and not only are they not frightened by it, but they want to profit off of it, and they want to go viral. So they post these videos on YouTube, hoping that they're going to turn their fortunes around. Anthony Mackie's character, I guess, has had various business dealings that have all collapsed and there's always some new thing and some new town they have to move to to start over and so this is going to finally finally, be their big payday they think and so that is kind of an interesting idea that they're commenting on the desperate nature of viral fame or the quest for viral fame um, but yeah it's also got Beetlejuice in it because he's in the attic and they want him to perform to freak people out like David Harbour is such a waste of him here. He can do so much and his presence is so formidable and he's got so much range. Like for a big burly guy, he's able to do so many different kinds of things and be so sensitive. And here they just put him in this like goofy, bad hair and this bowling shirt. And as you say, he never says a single word, but I kind of feel like if at some point he has said a single word that would have been more powerful than him saying nothing at all, I'll leave it there. But like, Jaheed Diallo-Winston, who is the younger teenager, I like his presence. He was good in a movie called Charm City Kings a few years back about Baltimore bicyclists. The friend next door who is like his buddy and maybe more is played by Isabella Russo. And she's not a manic pixie dream girl like she initially appears to be on the surface. There's more to her. Like there are all these things that have potential. It totally wastes Tignataro. It totally wastes Jennifer Coolidge. I like the Happy Death Day movies a whole lot. They've got much more focus, and this just feels meandering and scattered.
2: All right, completely opposite reviews of We Have a Ghost, uh, the film written and directed by Christopher Landon, it's rated PG thirteen, and streaming on Netflix. Coming up, we'll hear about uh, the action comedy Die Hard, the movie in which Kevin Hart plays a fictionalized version of himself. That's interesting. We'll hear about that. And uh, also uh, the film, My Happy Ending, starring Andy McDowell. Uh, We'll hear about those and also uh, be talking about the Oscar-nominated animated short films. And two more of our critics will join us for that. But I do want to remind you, tickets available, though they're going fast, for the 21st Annual Film Week Academy Awards preview Sunday afternoon, March 5th, exactly a week before the Oscars are given out. Our event is at the historic orpheum theater on broadway downtown los angeles get your tickets to see all 10 of our film Week critics on stage clips from the oscar nominated films the major categories we'll hear our critics argue over those really going to be fun tickets at laus.com slash events we hope to see you there
0: Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series From Canvas to Screen, capturing the drama and beauty of some of history's most celebrated works of art. Films include Metropolis by Fritz Lang, Days of Heaven by Terrence Malick, and Marie Antoinette by Sofia Coppola. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Saturdays now through March 30th. More information at NortonSimon.org. Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Water & Power, which reminds customers to protect themselves from fraud. Remember, PWP will never request payment over the phone, mention specific bill amounts, demand to enter your home, or require immediate payment through third-party apps or websites. Verify communications by calling customer service directly or viewing the latest fraud alerts at pwpweb.com fraud. It's Film
2: Week on LAist, 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us with our critics, Christy Lemire and Wade Major. Next up, the action comedy Die Hard, the movie. Kevin Hart playing a fictionalized version of himself. Eric Appel is the director. Derek Kolstad and Tripper Clancy, the screenwriters. Wade.
3: I think Kevin Hart is the smartest celebrity in Hollywood. And in this movie proves why, because he he understands intuitively his own persona to such a degree that he can actually make a movie satirizing his understanding or misunderstanding of his own persona. It's meta inside of meta, inside of meta. It, it, it's 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 I mean, it's 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 beyond even where the Nick Cage film went last year. So here, Kevin Hart, as himself, is frustrated that he's stuck in this short sidekick. Guy role that he's he's never the you know he he oh you're making your eighth movie with Dwayne Johnson's big big that's the big <laughs> the first big gag, and why why you know Dwayne gets to be the action star well, I could be an action star too so he is he finally he has a meltdown on television and then he a big action star played by or action director played by Jean Reno reaches out and says I will put you in my next big action movie but you have to go to Ron Wilcox's action star school. Action Star School, of course, has an acronym, which is very funny. And, <laughs> and so he goes to Ron Wilcox's school. Ron Wilcox is John Travolta. And he's crazy. He's out of his mind. He, he's a sadist. And instantly, Kevin Hart isn't quite sure how much of this is real and how much of this is not real. Do the guns have real bullets? Do they not? Are you trying to kill me? What's going on? And the more he tries to become that action star, the more he turns out to be that wild and crazy sidekick that he's trying to run away from. And that's exactly what he's doing here. And it's just, it's so, it's kind of a one-note joke that gets cranked up to, you know, five and six and seven, and they just keep cranking it up more and more and more to see, you know, is it going to break at some point? And it goes exactly where you know it's going to go. But there's an incredible joy in watching Kevin Hart just wink at the audience and satirize his own image and say, I know what I am, you know what I am, so we're just going to have a whole lot of fun with it. And uh, it's smart, it's self-aware, and, it you know, it's not trying too hard to be something... Other than what it is. And I just had a lot of fun with it.
2: Die Hard, the movie starring Kevin Hart, Eric Appel, the director. It's unrated. And it's on Amazon Prime Video. My Happy Ending, starring Andy McDowell, Miriam Margolis, and Sally Phillips. Tal Granit is the director, along with Sharon Maymon. Uh, what did you think, Christy, of My Happy Ending?
1: It is based on a play and very much feels like it. It is very obvious from the very first second, and it never deviates from that. And it all takes place in this one location by the late Israeli writer Anat Gov. And um, it's about Andy McDowell as this longtime but kind of fading American film and theater star who is diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. She goes to what she thinks is going to be an inconspicuous out of the way clinic to get her chemotherapy. She doesn't want anyone to know that she is sick, not even her her daughter who is about to get married. She's just totally conceited and arrogant and standoffish at first. But then the motley array of women who are also there getting their chemotherapy slowly but surely kind of warm her up and they all become friends. It all takes place over the course of a day in this one single room, but they have these flights of fancy that they take when the pain is too much to the, the holidays they wish that they could be on. Um, it has its moments here and there. It is not as maudlin as the premise might sound. Um, I wish it had been, I don't know, a little more imaginative visually. It, it takes these little visual trips that are are brief glimpses of who these women are or what they want to be that kind of feel rushed and uh I don't know, unsatisfying somehow. Each of the women gets a moment here or there, uh, Miriam Margulies and Sally Phillips and, and Rocky Thakra. I'm sorry, Thakar, um, all have these moments to show a, a glimpse here and there of, of who they are, but they're kind of stuck in one or two different little character traits. It's fine. I think it will probably resonate with anybody who has gone through this experience themselves. It's written with quite Mm. a bit of honesty and candor as to, um, you know, the, the difficult questions of what to do with your life and who to do it for.
2: My Happy Ending is the uh, comedic drama, again, directed by Tal Granite and Sharon Mayman Rona Tamir adapted the screenplay. It's rated R, and it's in select theaters. And finally, for this week's new films, God's Time, a uh, comedy thriller starring Ben Groh and Dion Costello. It's written and directed by Daniel and Tebby
3: Wade. Not impressed, and I, and I don't want to shoot down uh, Daniel Entebbe as a, as a first-time filmmaker. I I think he clearly has some ideas and some chops. They just aren't well-formed in this movie. Uh, it, it, it seems to be a largely experimental, in some ways semi-improvised film. Uh, about a group of people in a 12-step program recovering from, from you know, uh, drug addictions. And there's a woman here who is um, one... These two friends, two guys in the group, one of them has uh, has a crush on her. The other one is actually sleeping with her secretly. And she suddenly has a break about the, the ex-boyfriend that she blames, and they think that she's gonna go out and kill him. And so, you have this sort of meandering, convoluted, endless uh, search for her by these two guys to try to stop her from killing the, the, the ex-boyfriend. It doesn't really have any point to it. It doesn't really go anywhere interesting. It just has these characters occasionally, especially the one give this direct address to the camera, these weird little frozen interludes where he'll he'll say things that are not seen, and he'll do things that are not seen by other characters, but he's speaking to us. But none of it is dramatically satisfying, and none of it seems to have a narrative point to it. It seems to be just throwing these flourishes in there to say, I'm a first-time filmmaker. Look at these brave and audacious things that I can do. And, and that's great if it's actually going to take the audience somewhere rewarding, but it doesn't. So I think what you see here is a, is a first-time filmmaker who has some skills but simply doesn't have the material to which to apply them. And and so I'm willing to cut him some slack, but I don't think the movie's very good.
2: God's Time is the film writer-director Daniel Entebbe. It's unrated, and it's Lemley's Glendale Theater. All right, coming up, we're going to be talking with two more of our Film Week critics, Amy Nicholson and Charles Solomon, as we talk about the slate of Oscar-nominated animated short films. We'll hear what they have to say about it. Joining us for this section, of course, has been Christy Lemire and Wade Major. You're listening to Film Week on LAist 89.3. It's Film Week on L.A.S. 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle, joined by two more of our critics on today's program. With us, Amy Nicholson, who writes on film for the New York Times and hosts the podcast, Unspooled, and Charles Solomon, film critic for Animation Scoop and Animation Magazine. And let's start with the animated short films. uh, And uh, the nominees are The Boy, The Mole, The Fox, and The Horse, The Flying Sailor, Ice Merchants, My Year of Dicks, and An Ostrich Told Me the World is Fake, and I Think I Believe It. Charles, share with us, please, uh, which of any of these films you think uh, really showed distinction.
4: Well, I don't know that this is going to go down as a vintage year for animation. It certainly wasn't for features. Um, These films have their strong points and weak points. The Boy, the Mole, the Fox, and the Horse just won the BAFTA. It has some lovely 2D animation, beautifully drawn, sense of character, sense of style, grace to it. But it's burdened with the narration from the children's book it's based on. That's sort of trying to be a Jonathan Livingston seagull for a new generation with Bomo like, uh, well, wasting time with your friends is never really wasting time. And it just weighs this, this film down like an anchor around its neck. Uh, The Flying Sailor is the third nomination for Amanda Forbes and Wendy Tilby, two very talented filmmakers. It's actually um, Wendy's fourth nomination. She earned her first one solo. And it deals with the true story of a sailor who was blown a couple of uh, kilometers through space in the Great Nova Scotia explosion back in uh, around World War I. Uh, It's an interesting film, it's mixed media. Um, I wouldn't say it's my favorite of their films, but I think it's a very interesting film. Ice Merchants, like The Boy in the Mold, has a nice visual style to it, some nice animation, but it just kind of stops rather than uh, ending. Uh, My Year of Dicks is a whole melange of different styles that I don't think they ever reconcile visually, and I don't see what animation really brings to this story that live action wouldn't. An Ostrich Told Me the World is Fake, and I think it, Believe It, I Believe It, won the student Oscar. Uh, It's a student film from Australia. There's, um, again, some good stop-motion animation. I think it tries to do a little too much and to be a little too meta. But, um, you know, it's it's an interesting film. But there's no hair love or the wrong trousers or Mm. your basketball Mm. that you just sort of stand up and... uh, and cheer for. And now Amy's going to tell me I'm an old
5: <laughs> So Amy, what? which ones did you really like? I actually liked four of the five. I thought this was a much stronger year for animation than last year. Um, I Personally, my favorite among them is My Year of Dicks. Uh, my Year of Dicks is based on, you know, there's this memoirist, Pamela Ribon, and she talks about, you know, funny stories from her past. This is her kind of recanting, of her attempts to lose her virginity to different guys when she's in high school, and I think the animation here by the director Sarah Ganeshtoder really works well because it captures the gap between how this girl imagines her boyfriends—you know how she pictures them being, how she imagines like them being so romantic and poetic, and how she even changes how she looks to fit each one the animation style does jump around a lot, as Charles mentions, but it, I feel like it kind of jumps around in service of capturing how she's really mutating to try to please all of these different guys. And you really get this sense of a girl who is lost, chasing, you know, you having her imagination drive her instead of actually looking at the facts of her life. And I think I think the animation captures that really well. And it's super, super funny. And it's set in the 90s. I really adored this one. Um, <laughs> honestly, I thought they were all fairly strong Except for the boy, the mole, the fox, and the horse. It is beautifully done. The animation is gorgeous. But my God, it's like if you took Winnie the Pooh plus Paddington and then, like, candy dipped them and then rolled them in sugar and then put them inside cotton candy again. Like, that's sort of what this is. It is so cloying. And I do think it's it's probably, for its glaring fault, its absolute treacle, it's probably the one to beat just because... Ta-da! It's got celebrities in the voice cast. You know, Gabriel Byrne, Idris Elba. The book itself is a bestseller. It's really the heavyweight, but I find that disappointing because I really think this is a year with a lot of a lot of fun. Like I thought, the the message of this year's shorts really felt just like a call to be present in your own life. It wasn't like hectory, it wasn't luxury. But if you look at all of them, they're all kind of saying, you know, be here now, appreciate the world that you're living in. I thought the Flying Sailor really had this lovely montage of like everything that the sailor has experienced in his, in his life, kind of passing by. And none of it's really memorable. There's seagulls, there's fist fights, but you get the, the sense of weight of his life. And Ice Merchants just has the most beautiful, beautiful, beautiful visual style. It, it's really this like stark color palette. And it uses color in a way that just hammers home this beautiful story about like a widower and his son living on this mountainside. All and right. I actually think it's the meta that works, about, not I, I, not to disagree with Charles wholeheartedly. But fine, it's the meta that <laughs> works the best for me in in an audience that told me the world is fake. Because what the director does, Lachlan Pendragon is he zooms out from beyond the frame itself of the stop motion that he's animating. So he's having this character talk about how he thinks he's living in an artificial reality and how is he spending his days. He works in a cubicle farm. And meanwhile, you see the animator's hands work around him and you're getting this own sense of how the animator is spending his days. And I think those two things play really well off of each other. And I think if it weren't for the hands, the story would be just kind of slight.
2: We're talking about the Oscar-nominated animated short films, the five nominees. Now, uh, the films are available individually on different streaming services. Some of them are on YouTube. So you can search under the uh, Oscar-nominated animated shorts for 2023, and they'll uh, send you to places where you can see these. If you want to see all of them together, uh, you can do that uh, coming up Wednesday, March 8th, at the Geffen Theater at the Academy Museum on uh, Wilshire Boulevard. Uh, That's going to be on Wednesday, March 8th. Let's take a look at the uh, documentary short films. The five nominees here are The Elephant Whisperers, Hall Out, How Do You Measure a Year, The Martha Mitchell Effect, and Stranger at the Gate. Charles, which of these documentary shorts were you impressed with? Well, I
4: think The Martha Mitchell Effect is an interesting film. Um, It's kind of a reminder of, you know, previous political scandals and what went on in them and so forth. But I found it a bit rambly. I think the real standout here is *Strange with the Gate, which is the story of an ex-Marine living in Indiana who planned uh, to bomb the Muslim cultural center there and uh he was an expert with explosives he could have done it he dreamed of killing at least 200 people there but when he went to do uh, recon on the building he met the people they took him in they were so kind to him they completely won him over he converted to islam and now goes around talking about uh the journey he took from hatred to understanding and it's uh A very moving film, a very powerful story, and one that I think is um, important to hear in today's climate.
2: All right. The Martha Mitchell effect's getting a lot of attention, as I'm sure you've seen.
4: Yeah. Well, again, it's a reminder of previous political scandals. How were they handled? Um, And, you know, she was one of the first women to really come forth and make news uh, in the way that she did and to turn on Nixon to try and defend her husband, not knowing how implicated he was uh, in those crimes, so wow. it's again a lot of, of you know vivid memories for people of a certain age, myself included. Um, but I think the uh, the stranger at the gate has a stronger message and is uh, better assembled.
2: Again, we're talking about the documentary short films that are Oscar-nominated, the five of them, uh, on Thursday, March 9th at the Geffen Theater at the Academy Museum. They'll also be showing these films. And again, uh, these individually can be seen on a variety of different streaming services and YouTube. And finally, the live-action short films, the nominees are An Irish Goodbye, Ivalu, Night Ride, Le Poupil, and The Red Suitcase. Amy, uh, which of these are most connected with you?
5: For me, the standout here is The Red Suitcase. It's a it's a taut thriller of a sort, set in an airport, in set in the, in Luxembourg at the airport. There, it starts at the um, arrival terminal where people are getting their luggage, and you realize that there's just one little girl left. She's 16. She's from Iran. She has kind of a battered red suitcase filled with her art supplies. And she really doesn't want to exit the baggage area and go get picked up by her family. And you start to realize just in the panic in her eye what's happening, who the man is, who's actually waiting for her with a bouquet of roses. She doesn't speak any languages that anybody there understands. And so it almost is just sort of watching her face in kind of silent terror as a 16-year-old really out of her depth tries to figure out how to get out of an impossible situation. It's it's very sad, Um, but also just gripping, gripping, and the bright red suitcase of the title is really this visual pop that kind of keeps you going all around this airport and in, in her various attapes, attempts to escape. I do feel like the live-action shorts in general are kind of burdened by this need to have, like, a social message attached. They're all very do of a sort, and I feel like the the committee, the nominees, is really just as like, well, if it doesn't have a little dose of vitamin to it, what's the point? <laughs> I think that's limiting. Um, but of those, the second best is probably *Evil*, Lou, which also has a message but is right. beautifully shot. All right,
2: we're talking about the live-action short film nominees for the upcoming Oscars. My thanks to our critics joining us for this last segment of the program, Charles Solomon and Amy Nicholson. Reminder: Tickets available for the 21st annual Film Week Academy Awards preview with all 10 of our critics on stage at the Orpheum Theatre, downtown L.A. Tickets are at com slash events. We hope to see you March 5th. Hey, it's Brian, the host of the How to L.A. podcast. How about we go to the movies? Join us for a 10-part series, Revival House, and discover the magic of L.A.'s indie theaters. Who knows, you might meet someone.
0: I know it sounds antithetical because you're just sitting passively but in fact you're connecting with everyone else around you
2: subscribe to how to la from la studios wherever you listen to
0: podcasts